Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week we looked at um, waiting and looking, or looking and waiting for the first coming. And we looked at those uh, disciples of God, those believers in God, who trusted God's promises, who, was look, who were looking for the, the coming of Jesus Christ to earth, uh, to be the Savior of the world. And so we looked at people like Simeon and Anna, and even the, the Magi who traveled having seen the star. These people who had heard God promise and believed that God was faithful to his promises, that he would keep his word, and he would send this Savior. And then we looked and saw how it affected their lives. And so they're described as right, Simeon's described as righteous. He, he lived in a right relationship with other people. He was devout. He was sincere and right in his relationship with God. Um, and he was looking, the scripture says, for the consolation of Israel. And we'd, we'd begun in Malachi chapter 4 with the, the last of the prophets of the Old Testament uh, who had given that message. The last message God really spoke was, I'm going to send my messenger before him and he's going to come suddenly, unexpectedly. And we noticed there was a group of people in that day who were living uh, right towards God and God says, I'm going to write their names in a book. And I'm going to remember them uh, when my day of glory comes. And I really think God did that with those who were doing that when Jesus came the first time. That's why he shows them. He wrote them in his book. And he honored them. Well, now we're going to be looking at looking and waiting for the second coming of Christ. And it's us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. Are we looking? Are we waiting? Are we allowing his coming to affect our lives? So that's what we're going to look at um, this morning. And uh, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ is in two stages. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Lord's next coming is in two stages. Uh, first is the rapture. And, and the rapture uh, is when Jesus returns to the air. He doesn't come to earth. He, he comes to the air, and it's for those who have believed in him, even as we read in this passage. All the dead in Christ will be raised. They'll be uh, caught up to, with him. And those of us who are alive and remain, First uh, uh, Corinthians 15 talks about we will be changed in the twinkling uh, of, of an eye in a moment, um, 
we will get those resurrection bodies. We'll be caught up together with them. That word caught up is where we get the word rapture. This catching away of those who are in the church. Now remember the church wasn't seen in the Old Testament. It, it was a, a, a mystery that, that God hid from the Old Testament saints. And, and so this rapture you only find in the New Testament. And then we have, if you flip over just a page or so to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, um, every uh, chapter of 1 and 2 Thessalonians um, mention either the, the rapture or the second one, the revelation. And this is when Jesus returns to the earth with the believers to judge and reign as king of kings. And we'll pick it up. Uh, in verse 6. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. This is a much different. Uh, sometimes they describe the rapture as, as hidden, the trump of God sounds, but the world doesn't take notice of it. But this, the whole world will take notice of. And so there's these, these two comings of the Lord Jesus. And so we want to talk about those and, and the message they have for us. The prominence of, of the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's a major subject of the Bible. There are eight times as many references to the second coming as compared to the first coming. There are 1,845 different references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Old and New Testament. Um, I mentioned that the fact that there were going to be two comings was hidden from the Old Testament saints. Uh, many people view it as, as like if you were viewing a set of mountains from a distance, you would say, oh, those mountains are right beside each other. But you get up there, you may find that they're quite a bit of distance apart, but because you're viewing them from such a distance, they look like they're right together. And so you have uh, sometimes... Uh, references to both the first and second coming in the exact same passage. Um, in fact, uh, I, I'm always amazed at the breaking of bread that uh, often, uh, I remember one time I was speaking and five of the six passages I was going to share from were discussed in the breaking of bread uh, beforehand. I sometimes think God uses partially the breaking of bread as a, uh, a way of warming our hearts. But one of the references I was going to refer to was Luke chapter 4. If you were here at the breaking of bread, uh, you heard Brother Jeff Elmar share about that. That in Luke chapter 4, the Lord's in the synagogue. And he stands up and he reads uh, from the scroll Isaiah 61 uh, verses 1 through 2. And, and he said these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
Because he's appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. And he stopped and he sat down and he said, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing today. It describes his first coming. The last phrase of, the, of verse 2 of uh, Isaiah uh, 61 is the words, and uh, the, vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God, which describes the second coming. And they're right there. It flows right on through. But the Lord knows that there's a big gap between those two. And so you have all these references um, to uh, the coming of the Lord in both the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, 17 of the 39 books mention the second coming. But look at the New Testament. 23 of the 27 books refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the prevailing theme of the New Testament. In fact, one person uh, did some research and he discovered one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers either to the rapture of the church or Christ's coming to reign. A total of 318 verses. The Lord Jesus himself referred to the second coming 21 times. When something's that prominent, it means it's important. Someone has said, uh, the prominence of the second coming in Scripture is an indication that this event is important to God, and as a result, it ought to be important to us. Dr. Alexander McLaren, talking about the primitive or early church, pointed out the primitive church thought a great deal more about the coming of Christ than about death, thought a great deal more about the, his coming than heaven. Because they were looking and waiting for his coming. They were expecting to see him before they died. They weren't focused really on heaven. They were focused on the fact he's coming back. And I'm going to see him. Another has said the very words that the Lord used of his return, watch and be ready, point to the daily expectation of an event that, as Archbishop Trench said, is possible any day, impossible no day. Now, what's that phrase mean? Uh, possible any day, impossible no day. It means he could come today. And it means no one can give you absolute assurance today he's not coming. Every day is a day he could come, and there's not a single day on the calendar where you can guarantee someone this isn't the day he's coming. And so we should be expecting his coming. I'm reminded of a story of an old couple who had a sign in their house and in the morning when they got up, before they had breakfast, they would go and they would turn it, and they would turn it over, and it said, perhaps today. And at night, when they went to bed, before they turned off the lights, the last thing they did is they went and they turned the sign back over, because on the other side it said, perhaps tonight. They were waiting for his coming. God has given us uh, something to help us do that. Here at Bethany, we break bread. We take the Lord's Supper every week. And 
and we're told um, in the scripture that uh, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. It is to remind us that someday this bread and wine are not going to be here, not going to be available, not going to be needed, because we're going to be in his presence. And it's meant to stir us up and spend the week at waiting and looking for his coming. And so we want to talk. Uh, you know, um, Alexander McLaren pointed out the the focus of the early church and how it affected their lives. And so we're going to look at some passages of Scripture that talk about the Lord's coming and how the early church looking and waiting was evident and affected their lives. So if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I will, we're going to look at about five passages. You can either turn to them or you can, I'll put uh, the most pertinent verse, verses up on the screen. But in First, uh, first, or first Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul's talking about the salvation experience of the, Thessal the Thessalonican church. And uh, he says, verse 9, for they themselves, talking about people not only in Macedonia and up in Achaia as well, he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. The word translated wait is found only here in the New Testament, and it means to wait up for, to wait with expectation. I remember uh, Bob Smith's brother Dan speaking here one time, and he said to catch the essence of this word, he says, imagine this, you're at home, your child is coming home, and there's a titanic blizzard going on, and you're waiting for them to come home. But you're not just reading a book because you want to make sure they get, you're waiting for them to come home with some passion, with some expectation, with some concern that they make it safely there. And that's kind of the, the weight of that word. They were waiting for the Lord Jesus to come. It was, they could not wait for him to get there. They were concerned about his coming. It affected their presentation of the gospel. Someone has said the gospel is not only John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. It is also Acts 17.30 and 31. God is now declaring to men that people everywhere should repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That was Paul speaking on Mars Hill in Athens. When Peter was preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10, he said in verses 42 and 41, 
And he ordered us, speaking of the Lord, to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There was this emphasis, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's not coming back as savior, he's coming back as judge. And you better be ready for his coming. And so he says, listen, you turn from from idols to serve the living and true God. A lot of times we want to stop it there and wait for his son. Who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so there was this view of the gospel. You know, the word of God is like a sword and a sword has a double edge. It promises salvation. It guarantees judgment if salvation's rejected. It's a double-edged sword. And they were very aware of it. And it affected their evangelism. If you're there in 1 Thessalonians 1, in verse 6 it said, uh, he's talking about how they came to faith And he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. He speaks about their witness for Jesus Christ being an example to other believers. And that the word of the Lord had sounded forth from them. Paul saw the Thessalonians as relay stations that not only received the gospel, but sent it farther on its way with increased power. Looking and waiting expectantly for Christ affects whether or not we're involved in evangelism, it affects our lives. Turn to Philippians, if you'd like to turn to the passage. Philippians chapter 3. Paul's writing this little church that's been so faithful in sharing in the gospel with him. But you know, the Thessalonians weren't the only ones who were looking and waiting for the Lord's coming, and it affected uh, their lives. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is from heaven. And, and of course, that would be important to them because Philippi, uh, there was a war that Rome fought close to Philippi, and a lot of the soldiers who were wounded um, basically retired to Philippi. And so everybody in Philippi and born in Philippi became automatically a full citizen of Rome. They lived in Greece, but they had all the rights of every citizen who was born and lived in Rome itself. And he says, listen, your citizenship is in heaven. And they understood uh, what it meant to have a citizenship that was different from all those that lived around you. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
eagerly await. Uh, this is a Greek word that is only used here and three times in Romans chapter 8. And it's a word that suggests a tiptoe anticipation and longing. Think of little kids on Christmas morning that can open their gifts on Christmas morning. As I mentioned, the only other place in New Testament where it's used is Romans 8, 19, 23, and 25. And I love Philip's uh, paraphrase of, of Romans 8, 19. It, it catches this idea. He says, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. It speaks about that future day when Christians will have their glorified bodies and Christ will be back reigning on earth and the whole uh, creation that's been subjected to futility is going to be re released into the freedom of this new kingdom. And it says the whole creation is standing on its tiptoe eagerly awaiting that day. And then verses 23 and 25, it, it talks about us who in these mortal bodies we groan waiting for, for that glorified body, waiting for the day that we'll get that glorified body. But here in, in Philippians, Paul says, you're waiting for Jesus Christ. You're on your tiptoes. You're, you're ready. You're eager. You want to see him. You know, that kind of hope promotes perseverance. After talking about waiting, having that hope of having a glorified body, uh, Paul says in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, and then the same word, we wait eagerly for it. I think of uh, a number of times visiting um, older Christians. Maybe they're in the hospital or, or maybe they, they've, you know, outlived all their friends, and you talk to them, and what do they say? I'm ready to go home. I want to go home. And there's that eagerness to see the Lord Jesus. They'd even be more eager if he, if he would come. And the early church wasn't thinking about death or heaven. They were, we think about that because it's been 2,000 years. But he's coming, and there's this eagerness and it promotes a perseverance for life. Because the Philippians were facing suffering. Philippians 1.29, For you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul knew there were difficult days ahead for the Philippian church. And the hope that springs from the benefits that are ours in Christ which will be fully realized at his coming, brings perseverance for such times. So they take my possessions away. I got a mansion in glory. So they take away my life. I'll be resurrected again and live an even better life. And the coming of Jesus Christ gives that hope that gives perseverance. Turn again back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where where we began our readings, there's comfort. The last words of that passage uh, that we read um, 
say, therefore comfort one another with these words. What a source of comfort. Every time a Christian passes into glory, sometime or another, this passage will come up. For those who, who have had loved ones die, they're asleep in Jesus. I remember going to a funeral of a, the baby died during childbirth. And walking in and seeing this little shoebox size of a, of a coffin. And the baby looked like she was sleeping. Beautiful little baby that, that died in the childbirth process. And we look at people who have died and it looks like they're asleep. Now we know they're fully alive. They're more alive than they've ever been. <laughs> because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But here's what we know. They're at rest. Never again troubled by anything in this life. I owe Uncle Sam money. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? Right? There's nobody up in heaven worrying about some bill that needs to be paid. Worrying about whether the house needs to be recited next spring. They're not worried. They're totally at rest. And for... For those of us who lose loved ones, what a wonderful message that there's resurrection and there's reunion and there's better life, better memories ahead. What a tremendous comfort to this little body of believers who had lost some people who had come to faith and someone was teaching in the church, well, if they don't endure to the coming of Christ, they lose out. No, no, they don't lose out. And we will see them again. And for those of us who wait to be caught up together with them, to see them again, my wife tells me all the time, if one of us has to go, I want to go first. And then she always says immediately after that, but I hope we both go together. And there is that hope that we'll never taste death. Caught up in, a, in the twinkling of eye, as fast as light can go at 186,000 miles per second from the front of the eyeball to the back of the eyeball. That fast, out of here, in his presence, with all of our loved ones, who know the Savior. Comfort. We grieve not as those who have no hope. And it's a comfort. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. 
In Colossians 3, the emphasis is power for living the God-pleasing life. In verse 1, uh, he says, listen, if you've truly been saved, you've been raised up with Jesus Christ, then he says, keep seeking the things above. Concentrate on Christ. He is our life. The Colossians were under attack by false teachers. And they were saying, listen, if you want to be a super Christian, here's some secret truths that will, will make you a super Christian. You want to be a powerful Christian? Well, here's some, some practices that you can practice and it'll make you a powerful Christian. And all those things we're doing was taking their eyes off of Christ. And he says, listen, Christ is our life. He's the source of our life. And you need to set your heart and minds on Christ. And one of the things that does that is if you're looking for his coming. And you're looking for him to be revealed. He gives a wonderful te- some wonderful teaching here. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. This implies both concealment and security. You know, the real source of our life is hidden from the world. They just don't get it. But it's also secure and safe in him. Because he gives power for life. And peace as we look forward to Christ. Well, one last passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we also read. These aren't all the passages, but... These will give you a a flavor. Jesus is going to make all things right. In verse 6, he says, For after all, it is only just. Do you ever get irritated with evil in the world? Make your blood boil. Jesus Christ is going to come and make everything right. We read earlier in the gospel that he's the, the judge of the living and the dead. He's the inescapable judge. Sometimes you'll, you'll read about someone who, creates a, uh, who commits a crime and then the authorities are closing in and in one last thumbing of his nose at the authorities of this world, he commits suicide. In his mind saying, I got away with it. But see, Jesus Christ has the power to raise everyone from the dead. No one gets away with anything. And so he says he's coming back. And there's going to be judgment on those who didn't obey the gospel, who rejected the Savior. There's going to be, there'll be a retribution on all those evil deeds that were done. And there's going to be reward. See, he's the judge of the living and of the dead, and no one who's guilty can escape him through death. And death cannot rob you of any reward either because Jesus Christ is going to raise people from the dead. And so he raises people from the dead for judgment. He raises people from the dead for reward. Those 
who have put their trust in him. And he's going to make everything right. Well, what should we take away from Jesus making everything right? In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In verse 21, he says, Do not become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have been set free from the need of revenge. If someone harms me, I'm set free from the need to get back at them. I can give it to God. And God says, I will take care of that. Either he'll bring that person to, to salvation and and there'll be repentance and restoration, or it'll be on their card on the day of judgment. But God says, I'll do it. And so it sets me free to do good because I don't have to get revenge. I was once at a, at a camp, a teen camp, and the girls thought it would be a, a funny thing to, to do to go into the boys' Uh, dormitory after we'd gotten them all in chapel and pour perfume, open their suitcases and pour perfume all over their clothes. I was the head guy counselor at that camp and uh, I had them all there in chapel seated in their right minds. I was so proud. And then the girls come in giggling and one of the guys said they did something and all of them dashed out and so we went to the cabin and sure enough they had during the course of that meeting, I'm sure nobody heard anything from the black looks the boys were giving the gals. And the gals had been, begun to rethink their plan. And so as soon as it was over, we released the girls to their dorm, and we kept the guys in the chapel. Thankfully, two of the leaders of the guys had come to faith in Jesus Christ that week. And we were able to get them off to the side and say, you guys need to lead for Christ. And so we said to the guys, what are we going to do to the girls? And they had a lot of ideas <laughs> that we had to reject. And eventually, we came up with, they would take some of their canteen money, and we would go to town and buy ice cream and all the toppings, and we would invite the girls up to the dining hall, and they would serve the girls ice cream sundaes. And they did that. It took a while to get the girls to come out, but we got them up there. I run into kids from that camp from time to time, and they still tell me, best week of camp ever. We could have had a camp that went right down into the muck. Instead, it put it on a course where they listened to the word of God, and God changed lives. One guy came to me at the end of the camp and said, this has been great. There's, every guy here has a girl who likes him. And I said, well, <laughs> that wasn't why you do good. <laughs> but God wants to free us from the need to get revenge and to be able to look and do good 
to those because Satan wants to overcome us with evil. So what does it say? He's coming. He says, listen, be looking, be waiting. Why? He's coming. So be bold in sharing the good news. He's coming. Be strengthened by the hope it brings. He's coming. Be comforted in times of sorrow. He's coming. Be empowered to live a God-pleasing life. He's coming. Be encouraged. Justice will come. Do good. He's coming. Watch. He's coming. Be ready. Because he's coming. Perhaps today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope that's ours. What a, a great thing you've given us in the salvation that came when your son came into the world. What great blessing. What great changes of lives. What great impact on the world from Christians living for your son. But oh, how great it will be to see him face to face to fully have everything that he won for us at Calvary. Help us to live and to wait for his coming on tiptoe because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.